Well, good morning, church family. What a wonderful time of worship that we've had this morning. And so uh, if you've been here uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, this text that we begin with this morning will be familiar to you. Uh, if you've not been here, or you're joining us for the first time. We've been in the last three weeks looking at Matthew 25. Uh, and as you know, uh, the disciples come and they ask Jesus a question about his, his second coming and the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, I will remind you, essentially, they ask him when it would happen. Uh, and rather than answering that question, Jesus focused on their preparation for when it did happen. And so we looked at a various parables. We looked at the parable of uh, the wedding party where you had five foolish virgins and five wise virgins, five that were welcomed in and five who were left out. We looked at then the parable of a master uh, making his servants stewards of what he owned, who upon returning found two faithful and one wicked. And then last week, uh, Brother Will led us to look at the description that Jesus has of his final day when he will separate all people into two categories, those blessed of the Father who are welcomed in and those cursed who are told to depart. Now, in the synoptic gospel of Mark, so we've been in Matthew, in Mark there's a very similar encounter as Matthew 25, but it is a much more condensed version. And so um, it reads much the same in terms of flow. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. He's responding to his disciples' questions by describing what are certainly the events surrounding the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and then he moves on from there to the final day of his coming, the day of the Lord. Uh, and then he makes this statement in Mark 13, if you want to turn there now, Mark 13, uh, verse 32. And I didn't mark it, so you know you have some time to get there. Mark 13, 32. Jesus makes this statement. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, uh, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, this is an identical statement that he makes in Matthew uh, 24, 36. And so after the, over the last three weeks, we've looked at the suddenness of his return. And so this, this text that we're going to read today, this morning, to kind of begin, doesn't add a lot to that um, uh, but we're going to begin in Mark and move to 1 Thessalonians this morning. So if you want to stay in Mark for a moment, we're going to read through that and then we'll move to 1 Thessalonians. So Mark 13, 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Now, certainly this reinforces what we've been learning in Matthew 25. Jesus' return will be unexpectedly expected. He will return to hold his servants accountable. And in every story, in every version, in every illustration, you do not want to be caught unprepared when he returns. But then Jesus makes this unique statement in verse 37. We do not find in Matthew, and I want to focus your attention on it this morning. It is Matthew 13, verse 37. And this is what the master says. And what I say to you all, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. 
What an interesting statement. Jesus plainly and directly says that all of these warnings are not just for his immediate disciples, but for all those that listen to him. He says, I would tell everyone the same thing I'm telling you now. Stay awake. Be on guard. Four times in this short passage, Jesus issues commands. Be on guard, keep awake. And then twice he says, stay awake. And each of these three have kind of slightly different emphasis. But what I want you to understand this morning is they're all the same tense. And that is the present active imperative. And so uh, what that means is present in the sense that they're ongoing actions. Uh, To be on guard, to stay awake is not a one-time action Jesus is calling to us. It's an ongoing action. To... Um, stay, keep awake is ongoing, to be on guard is ongoing, to stay awake is ongoing. These are all present tense, active in the sense that Jesus is calling us, the hearers, to do something and imperative in the sense that Jesus is not making a suggestion, but rather he is making a command. Jesus says, listen, there's these things that you need to continuously do and they're not suggestions, they're commands. Jesus tells us to be, take heed, that is to pay attention to what he is saying and be careful to consider it. He says to keep awake, that is to exercise constant vigilance. When we use these two together, it seems that Jesus is telling us what to do, carefully consider and pay attention to everything that he's saying, and then how to do it, do that vigilantly, constantly. And then the third command repeated twice, he says, simply stay awake, which I think is a good summary of the first two. Be actively cautious, aware of your surroundings, aware of your duties, ready at any time to be called into account by the master, right? Isn't that the whole point of all the parables? Be ready at any time to be called into account. And so as we saw this morning, uh, we begin uh, this, this Advent season. This is the first Sunday of Advent, which is a season of expectation. It is a season that we both look back at the first coming, but look forward to his second coming. And so we've been studying this for a few weeks now and having come to such a similar passage as what we've been studying in Mark 13, I was unsure of what direction to go in the sermon this morning. I had We had preached through Matthew 25 and then to come to Mark 13, which says some of the same things I Uh, My mind was drawn to that last sentence where Jesus firmly says this is for everyone. But beyond that, what more can I say about the suddenness of his coming that we've already not said in the last three weeks? So as I was reading and I was cross-referencing, I came across a passage of Paul and I literally laughed out loud uh, because Paul echoed my heart in this passage. And so then it all fit together. And so this morning I want to talk to you as those who do understand the fact that Jesus is coming again, and those who appreciate that it will be sudden about what it looks like to stay awake. So turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to look at what it looks like to stay awake. So we have found the warnings. We are going to heed them. And so the question becomes, what is that going to look like in our life? So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's read those first five verses together. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. I thought, well, that's our situation, right? 
We've talked about it for three weeks now. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Let's stop there for a minute. Paul says, listen, I've already taught you and you already understand about the suddenness of the Lord's return. You know that the world will keep on going as in the days of Noah, completely unaware of the coming judgment. You know that it will be destruction for them and that there is no escape. You will not be surprised at this because God has brought you into his glorious light. You are children of the light. You are children of the day. So then, mind the connective. Notice the connective in verse six. So then, because you know and because you are, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Think about it. Paul is echoing the same thing Jesus commanded in Mark 13. Stay awake. He's going to go on to describe what it looks like to be awake and to stay awake. Let's pick up at verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. So what does it look like to stay awake for the Christian? Or maybe a better question this morning is, how do you know if you are being obedient to Jesus's command to stay awake? I want to share with you this morning four indications that you are awake from the Apostle Paul's letter. If you're a note taker, uh, the first one is this. You will be clear about who you are. So Paul wants them to understand, first and foremost, who they are. He says, but you are not in darkness. That but you, Paul contrasts his readers with those who find themselves in the sudden destruction, caught unprepared in the escapable judgment of the Lord is returned. They are unaware. You are fully aware. They are saying peace and security. You know judgment is coming. They are in darkness. You are in light. But you. But, but who is Paul addressing? Who is this people that he's writing? Well, we find the answer to that, of course, in the letter itself. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, For you know, brothers, that he has chosen you, that is God. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 1 Thessalonians 2, and we thank God constantly for you that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
1 Thessalonians 5, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Listen, who are they? They are chosen by God. They have received the word. They are displayers of sanctification through the imitation and obedience to the apostles. They are the ones that believe the message of the gospel as the word of God. He is talking to the church at Thessalonica, redeem men and women who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you, those that have been called out of the world, those that have been redeemed and saved and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is he doing here? He's reminding them of who they are, right? This is who you are. He uses two descriptions to differentiate them from the world at large. Those who are in the church of Christ are first children of light, not children of darkness. They are children of the day, not children of the night. So what does Paul mean when he calls them children or sons of the light and sons of the day? Well, we have to ask, who is the light? Or what is the light? And all good Christians know the answer to that question. Jesus is the light. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 5, as long as I am the world, in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the light. To be a son of light then is an indication of one's relationship with Christ. And that's easy to see, but what is the day? Well, obviously there's the contrast between day and night, but uh, is Paul saying more here? Notice what he says so far in our short passage about the day. You are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. Now, uh, this is my own thought, so do with it what you will. But I think Paul is saying that on that day, on Christ's day, when he comes to establish his day forever upon the new heaven, the new earth, we are children of that day in the sense that we will be welcomed into the inheritance prepared for us before the foundation of the world. And if he's saying that, if he's saying you are children of the light and you are children of the day, then what is he doing? He's reminding them that they belong to Christ and they have nothing to fear on the day of his return. Right? So that's where he starts. Here's the reality. If you are a Christian, if you have been born again, you have not merely added something to your life. Coming to Christ is not like joining a gym or graduating from school. It's not you plus a degree, you plus a membership. Christ radically changed you. The Bible says you are a new creature. You have been fundamentally changed. You have moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from death to life, from bondage to freedom. Everything else that describes a child of light flows from this changed identity, not the other way around. We do not work to become children of light. We are children of light, so we work. Amen? This is what Paul is setting up here. So he begins with this. This is who you are. We do not work to become new. We work from our newness that was given to us by grace. To say it another way, if you are awake, listen, it is because God has made you awake. And if you are awake, you are a new creation. This we must be crystal clear about if we are going to live in obedience to our Lord. We have to know who we are. And this leads us to our next indication. 
that we are awake. Paul says, essentially, the second indication is you will come out from among those who are not. We do have a slide. It will come up there. All right, you will come out from among those who are not. Leave that up there for a minute because I know that's a little bit of a mouthful. But Paul tells them first, listen, this is who you are. I want to remind you of who you are in Christ. And then he goes from reminding them about who they are in Christ to what that should mean in their life. So if you want to write an additional note here, write this, a changed life comes from a changed identity. That's what Paul wants them to understand. A changed life comes from a changed identity. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. There are things that do not fit with our new selves that fit our old selves. We were once asleep, children of the night, and we acted as children of the night, which is what Paul says in so many places and in so many ways. Summarizing those, 1 Corinthians 6, he says, all these things, the unrighteous, what they look like, and he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were this way, but now you are not. Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sin, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom all lived, right? Carrying out the desires like the rest of mankind, a child of wrath. You were this way, but now you are not. Ephesians 4.20. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You were this way, but now you are not. Paul sums it up here in 1 Thessalonians when he says, keep awake and be sober as opposed to asleep and drunk. Both things, he says, that people do at night. But, but you're not just to put away those things, but you're to no longer associate with those things. He expounds this on his letter to the church at Ephesus when he says, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. Paul says, do not be a co-participant, a partner with them. He says, as those who are in Christ, you should not be doing the things that people who are not in Christ do. Your life should be different. You're different, you have a new identity, and therefore your life ought to be different. Now listen, I need you to hear something. When I say you should come out from among them that do those things, I am not advocating a monastic life. We are not called to so withdraw ourselves from the world that we do no good for the kingdom, right? We are not called to only surround ourselves with Christians. This is not what this means otherwise our Lord and Savior would not have prayed this prayer in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, 
but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me, I am sending them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We are not called to withdraw from the world. We are called to withdraw from the lifestyle of the world. Say it again. We are not called to withdraw from the world. We are called to withdraw from the lifestyle of the world. Paul uses two words to describe the lifestyle of the world. They are asleep to the things of God and they are drunk on the things of the world. Do not make the mistake to think that Paul is only addressing alcohol in his prohibition. Being intoxicated is being so influenced by a substance that you lose mental control and ability. Your faculties are greatly diminished. Do not think you cannot be drunk on entertainment. You are so consumed with binging your favorite shows or so enthralled with your favorite sports team that you have functionally distracted yourself from the important things of life. You're intoxicated by what it has to offer. Some of you are intoxicated on consumption. You are so consumed with enjoying the things of life that you are distracted from the important things in life. Some of you are drunk on earning. You are so consumed with making more to the neglect of your family, your mental and spiritual health, that you are distracted from the important things in life. Listen, whatever your drug of choice is, the world makes it available. Paul is saying that this indulgent, self-centered, mind-numbing lifestyle is not consistent with who we were made to be in Christ. We do not watch the same things the world watches. We do not enjoy the same thing the world enjoys. We do not consume the same thing the world consumes. Listen, this is where I will go with this. If your life looks no different than your unsaved neighbors or your unsaved friends, then friend, you are in trouble. Because Jesus says you are new and your life ought to look different. Paul gives two pictures here. If you would allow me to be a little bit creative with the imagery, here's the two pictures. One is someone laying in bed with the TV on, with a drink on the nightstand and a plate of food on the bed, completely absorbed with themselves and only concerned with what makes them feel good. The second picture is a soldier awake and prepared for battle. One who has put away the things that hinder and put on things that are fit for what they have been called to do. They are sober, calm, collected, He uses the illustration that he's going to flesh out later, right? The armor of God. Here he only uses two pieces, the breastplate and the helmet. He calls the breastplate faith and love and the helmet, the helmet of salvation. This is someone standing firmly in their faith, both covered and expressing the love of God, ready to march into battle, secure in their salvation. These are the two pictures Paul paints. Now, Brittany and I recently got the chance to go on a trip to New York And we decided that we were going to go on Friday to the 9-11 Memorial Museum. What we did not realize is when we came out of the subway, we were going to find ourselves in a shopping mall on Black Friday in New York. If I had to make the list of places that I never wanted to be, that was one of them. And we're walking through. And while we're there going, trying to get through, we see two officers standing in complete gear, bulletproof vest, helmets, rifles, standing, observing, ready to act in the case of a riot or looting, which has been increasing in some places you've seen the news, right? 
all around them, people were frivolously spending money. All around them, people were getting ice cream and they were spending money to buy things they didn't need with money they didn't have. It was all happening around them. How silly would it have been if those men had been doing the same thing? Of course they weren't. They had separated themselves. They had prepared themselves to fulfill the task or the job they had to do. And listen, in the same way as a believer, you have been called to live differently, to be engaged in the spiritual battle around you, to put away your old life and live in light of your calling. The lifestyle change, this lifestyle change we're talking about is an indicator that you are awake and being obedient to our Lord's command. But listen, why do we do this? Why do we live differently? Because we are headed for a different destination than those who are children of darkness. This is the next indicator. Verse The, the third is you will embrace the assurance of your salvation. Paul says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Paul wanted these believers to understand that part of being awake, being sober, was understanding that this life is not it. This is not the end. All of history is moving towards the day. There is a day coming that Jesus will return. He will come in glory, visibly, physically, and finally. This is the day we've been talking about now for over the last three weeks. It is the arrival of the bridegroom. It's the return of the master. It's the son of man coming with his angels to sit on his glorious throne. And on that day, there will be those who experience wrath and those who experience salvation. What is the difference between those two groups? Paul says, God has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In his opening statements, he says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Who delivers us from the wrath to come? Jesus. How does he do it? He died for us. How do we know that his dying force redeemed us from the wrath? Because God raised him from the dead, right? Therefore, we wait for his son to come from heaven, confident, assured. Assured of what? Assured that on that day, I am not gonna experience wrath because it has been placed on Jesus Christ. Where does that assurance come from? The sincerity of my prayer the works that I do, my membership at the right church and the right denomination. No, it is the finished work of Christ that gives us assurance that we are not destined for wrath. It is God's gracious choice to save us that gives us assurance that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So why is this important for us to be assured of our salvation? Two reasons come to mind this morning. One, because it frees us. It frees us to follow him, not to earn our salvation on that day, but to follow him out of our new identity as a child of God destined for salvation on that day. It frees me 
I'm accepted in Christ. I'm redeemed in Christ. I didn't do anything to earn it, and now I can live out that in response to it. It frees me to pursue Christ. Two, because if I'm heading for salvation on that day, then it ought to change how I live now as I wait for his return. We are those who are attentive, ready, living for his return, not as though we are unaware and unconcerned about it. Listen, here's where I want to make a distinction. Embracing the assurance of our salvation does not mean that we simply consider it done and go on with our lives. I am not talking about the kind of assurance that comes with saying a prayer and getting a get-out-of-hell-free card. Never does the Bible describe salvation that way. I'm talking about understanding that in trusting in Christ, you have been made new and you've been given a new eternal destination that absolutely and unequivocally changes your life. There is nothing you can do to lose it because there's nothing you did to earn it. It is fully resting in the finished work of Christ. That's where my assurance comes from. Not because I said the right words, not because I joined the right church, but because Christ died for me. And he finished the work. And if you have an assurance based on anything else, stop it. To use Paul's analogy, it is the difference between being awake and being asleep, being sober and being drunk, being in the light and being in the dark, being in the day and being in the night. It is completely different. If embracing the assurance of your salvation leads you to worldly living, I'm going to say it again. If embracing the assurance of your salvation leads you to worldly living, you have either not understood salvation or you have put your assurance in the wrong place. Embracing the assurance of your salvation should motivate you to holy living through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the greatest indicators that you have been saved. Finally, and to deal with Paul's last indicator, we see you will engage Christians around you. Now, Paul goes here in verse 11. After all of that, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, you know, if you study with us on Wednesday night, then whenever there's a therefore, you need to pay attention. So Paul says, therefore, which simply means because of the things that I've said. What things? Because of who you are as a child of the light, because you belong to the day, because you are destined for salvation through Jesus Christ, whether, by the way, Paul says you remain alive until he comes or die before he does, since all that is true, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Paul moves from who we are and how we're to be different from the world to how we should be interacting with one another as children of the light. He uses two words to describe our relationship with the Christians around us, encourage and build up, both of which, by the way, are commands. The word translated encourage shares a root word, word used of the Holy Spirit when he is called the comforter. Paul says, Encourage is active. Coming along someone is alongside someone as comforter, encourager, as someone who exhorts. In John's gospel, that word is used as a noun, translated as a comforter, advocate to talk about the sending of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to me that Paul uses this language. 
in talking about relating to one another in the church, we know the Holy Spirit operates internally in a believer to convince, to convict, to encourage, to comfort. But Paul also puts emphasis on the fact that we are called to come alongside one another and at least in some sense perform a similar ministry towards one another. To come alongside, to link arms, to encourage, to comfort, to put, to, to motivate, right? This is the job. As a Christian, you have a calling to encourage other Christians around you. The other command is to build another up. The idea here is to promote growth in Christian wisdom, affection, grace, virtue, holiness, blessedness. Now, obviously, this is not the first time Paul has taught this because he says you're already doing it. But notice with me, he undergirds the commands by appealing first to who they are, second to their changed lives, and third by the assurance of their salvation. He says, Christians, those who are awake, you will minister to one another by encouragement and building one another up. This will be a reality if you are a born-again, awake, obedient Christian. Now, what's the most obvious implication then? You have to show up in the lives of the believers that you're connected with. This isn't something that happens outside of meaningful relationships, which are cultivated by being together regularly, habitually. If you're not so intertwined with the Christians around you that you know where they're hurting, you know where they're celebrating, how can you encourage and build them up? If you know not where they are spiritually, how can you help them grow or mature? You have to be engaged with the Christians around you. This is the author of Hebrew makes almost an identical point in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God and let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed by pure water, since that's who we are, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he promises faithful let our life change. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you'd see the day drawing near. Notice the author also connects the assembling together as an outworking of their belonging to Christ. And in the assembling together, they are to spend time thinking about how to motivate one another to further maturity in their regular assembly. And he uses the motivation of the quickly approaching day of our Lord as reason to be seriously engaged with the believers around you. It's almost the same argument, the same basis that we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians. Now, we've often heard that verse, right? Usually divorced from the context, don't neglect the meeting together, the assembling as some is the habit of some. But there is a sense here that there were some people in this area that called themselves Christians that had made it their custom not to meet together with the church. I know everybody's tense right now. So I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to leave this, this subject alone for a minute. How do you know if you're making it a habit to neglect the assembly of the church? How do you know? I'm going to say there's two good tests to self-administer this morning. If you were to look over the last couple of months, have you gathered more than you have missed or have you missed more than you gathered? Pretty simple test. But secondly, and more importantly, 
Have you already decided in your heart that you will forsake the assembly the next time blank happens? Have you already predecided in your heart that the next time a tournament happens, the next time a hunting season happens, the next time there's an early Cowboys game, the next time I work late on Saturday, have you already predetermined that you will not gather with the believers? Listen, you have forsaken the assembly of the believers because you've already decided that it is less important than the thing you're going to do. Listen to me, I'm not saying you can't vacation, you can't miss, but if you've already planned your missing, you've forsaken the assembly of the cells. Period. And we all have the temptation to put things ahead of the assembly. Don't, do not mishear me. But I will not shrink back from what God's word proudly proclaims. Now, why is this important? You say, Pastor, what does it matter? What does it matter if I'm here? You as a Christian have been commanded by the inerrant, infallible, trustworthy, authoritative word of God to be actively engaged in the lives of the Christians around you. The bare minimum that doing that requires is gather regularly for the purpose of worship on the Lord's day. You want to know whether you're awake, whether you're obedient to the Lord's command to stay awake, then are you actively engaging the brothers and sisters around you for their good and their growth at personal cost to yourself? That's the question. Jesus commands us to stay awake. He says, I am coming again. And we've asked the question this morning, how do I know I am awake? How do I know I'm obedient to that command? And we have answered that question as simply as I know how from Paul's letter to a church he loved dearly by looking at the four indicators he gives us, a Christian who is truly awake will be clear about who they are in Christ. They will have lives that are radically different than the world around them. They will have a deep assurance of their salvation rooted not in their works, but in Christ's finished work, and they will be actively and regularly, habitually engaging with the faith community around them. When Jesus returns, will he find you awake? That is, will he find you actively obeying him and joyfully expecting his return as one of his children? Or does your life paint a different picture than the one we find here? This is the question we must ask ourselves this morning. For as Paul says in his letter to the Romans, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousies, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is what it looks like to stay awake. Let me close with this illustration. A story just broke this week in the New York Times. Maybe you read it, maybe you saw it, about what happened in Israel on October 7th. It details that Israel had knowledge of Hamas's plan to attack in exactly the way they did almost a year before it happened. They intercepted a 40-page detailed plan that Hamas eventually carried out almost verbatim. So we have to ask the question, if they knew about it, why were they not ready? Why did they not stay awake? Because they didn't take it seriously. They dismissed it 
as a fantasy by Hamas, as aspirational at best. They believed they did not have the power or resources to pull it off, even when one of their own analysts raised the alarm that Hamas was quickly closing the gap in terms of power and resources. They were dismissed. They did not take the warning seriously. Listen, friends. Jesus has told us exactly what is going to happen when he returns. He has told us he is on his way and he has commanded us to stay awake, to be ready and not to be caught unaware. I Listen, I pray that you would not dismiss that warning. And I pray for those of you that believe what the Bible says about that day, that you would be living your lives in light of the truth. Let's pray this morning.